Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go, here we go. What's up, everybody? Music off. There we have it. All right. Hello again. Single Tongue coming at you again, Chris, for another solo episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Welcome, one and all. I am going to do today what ended up being like an extension of the episode I did on Islam a couple of, a couple of episodes back. And the reason is this. I talked about a lot of stuff on that podcast that I, I didn't have time to prepare and write out um, kind of everything that I might want to touch on if I'm talking about Islam. And there was some stuff that got left out that I thought was worth probably a whole nother, whole nother episode. So uh, first thing I wanted to mention was I, I mentioned in that, in that episode um, that I had a buddy uh, from Jordan who was Muslim and uh, who I became good friends with and kind of let me in on... He let me in on a lot of um, a lot of stuff about you know being a Muslim that you wouldn't know unless you were one or unless you you know had family members that were and you spent time with them to that level. So lots of good stuff. Um, and there was something that I remember asking him. So this 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 gentleman I didn't use his name, but his name is Majdi. Good dude, uh, really good dude. I miss him. Um, he moved moved out of state. So uh, shout out to Majdi. In any case, I asked him one time. I used to go over to his uh, to his house. I, br- I used to bring that copy of the Quran that I mentioned. <laughs> that I mentioned uh, that that guy from Africa lent me uh, when I was working at the movie theater. But I'd bring it over to his house. I'd I'd ask him about it, um, and he, like I said, he was very gracious. And and not only was he gracious, like answering the questions of the ignorant guy that doesn't know anything about his culture or religion, um, but you know, like a like taking a joy in teaching me about it and. Um, you know, you could tell like there maybe there was something about an opportunity to I don't know if you use the word evangelize, but an opportunity for him to spread you know the the Muslim um, teachings to a you know non-believer I guess or however you want to put it. You know, I can see that he had some there was some value in in, in from, like, like from a religious perspective and being able to talk to me about it. So there was more more reasons than just being a nice guy. Um, but it was all good, good intended, and you know, it wasn't pressuring me in any way. Just being open and, and answering my questions. But what, there was a question that I asked him that he he didn't really answer, and I and I didn't really think much about it because it's been a really long time until now. And I'm wondering if maybe he didn't answer it because because he couldn't answer it. So this this is something that came up with. Uh, that podcast with uh, Jordan Peterson and the um, Akiol guy from Turkey that he was talking to 
is like, hey, like Jordan's a Christian and, and he was a Muslim and uh, their traditions have a lot in common. You know, Islam came from Judaism and Christianity, so they got to have a lot in common. But when you ask a Christian like Jordan, what do you know about Islam? It's like precious little, right? And when you ask a, a Muslim, what do they know about Christianity? It's precious little. And I'll give you an example. So I was asked one time by, uh, I don't think if it was Mejdi, maybe it was his wife. Um, and I was asked about the little piece of paper that Christians put in their mouths. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm like laughing to myself. What are you talking about? What do you mean a little piece of paper Christians put in their mouth? She was talking about communion. She was talking about the wafer. She didn't know it was it was a cracker or uh, unleavened bread. You know, if it would have been unleavened bread, you know, it, it would have looked like it. She's a she's a Muslim. She'd have been very familiar. It's like, oh, a little little piece of pita. What does that mean? But that's not what she said. She said, "What is the little piece of paper you put in your mouth?" Then I had to explain to her, "It's not paper," you know. And I'm like, I'm laughing. You know, it's like a it's a question that you would get from somebody who is completely alien to your culture, right? And I had to say, look, it's not paper, it's a it's a cracker, and this is what it represents, and this is why we do it, and all that sort of thing. And she was just as, uh, you know, appreciative and enlightened by, by my willingness to talk about it in a nice way, in a kind way, to somebody who didn't know. And uh, now, now they know, and it's interesting, right? It's an interesting thing to know. This is what I'm pointing out, though, that a Muslim family that was devout, that knew, you know, the Quran well... And uh, the Quran talks a lot about Jesus and Mary and, and uh, you know, the whole religions and, and, you know, an outshoot of the Judeo-Christian religion. So you would think something as fundamental as the communion that a Muslim would know about it. But they did not. They were so utterly confused by it that they thought it was a piece of paper and were asking me to, cut to, to you know, explain it to them. And... Um, it's just interesting, right? It's interesting that someone like Jordan Peterson, um, an academic who studies, if maybe not studies religion explicitly, but has a super duper interest in it, that he was just as ignorant as, you know, talking to a Muslim as uh, as Mejdi and his family was asking me about communion. And I, I think that's interesting that there's such a gap in knowledge. We're not talking to each other. Muslims, you know, Muslims and Christians aren't getting to know each other and what we believe. So this gets me back to the question I asked Mejdi that he couldn't answer to me. As I said, look, you know, if Muhammad, if Muhammad is a prophet who came after a whole series of prophets, including Jesus, and you believe Jesus is part of that tradition, and he's, you know, the, the second most important figure in Islam apart from Muhammad, so um, so I so I, so I guess the way that I phrased it to him, and I'm not 100% sure, it's been a long time, is something like, what did Muhammad teach that Jesus didn't? So like, if it's necessary to have another prophet, like, you know, Christians generally don't believe it is. Like, Jesus did what he came to do, and, you know, we, we can talk about that, but, you know, as a Christian, you understand that's the end-all, be-all, that Jesus' life and resurrection and sacrifice is all that's necessary. It's the sacrifice of God to himself to his creation. You know, there isn't any greater sacrifice than that. There's there's no greater, you know, blessing than that. So what's the need for another prophet? What's the purpose? And that's what I asked him. 
Like, look, if, if 600 years after Jesus, it was necessary for another prophet to show up, what was it that he was teaching that Jesus didn't teach? What was he adding to the to the law? What was he adding to the to the belief system? Uh, what was he t- changing or taking away from it? And and Meshdi could not answer me that. You know, I can't remember if maybe you just beat around the bush a little bit and said things that you know m- Muslims will often say when you're having conversations like that is highlighting all the similarities. Okay, you know, if you're if you're a Muslim, you believe that Jesus was uh, born from a virgin. You believe that you know he was sent by God. You believe that he was a messenger and a prophet, and you know that's like a, a tremendous amount of overlap with Christianity. So, what is it that makes Muhammad's message different than Jesus's message? Because, right, how am I supposed to to evaluate whether Islam is you know, a more true religion or that it merits my following it more than Christianity or any other religion. Like, I need to know what it is that Islam's teaching that Jesus isn't teaching because that's going to make a difference, right? If you're saying that Muhammad came after Jesus and, and said some stuff that was important that Jesus didn't say and, and, you know, a whole religion is formed based on those distinctions, what are those distinctions? And why is it not possible for an ordinary believer on either side of the aisle <laughs> so to speak, to answer that question. And I think you'll see this today because we're going to go through some of these things. Uh, we're going to read We're going to read some of the Quran today, a little bit. Um, and I think you'll see as we go through and we read that, that there are certain things that a Muslim is going to object to that a Christian is going to say. And that comes up in the Quran, and it comes up a lot. So we'll talk about that. Um, where to begin? Where to begin? All right, so let me let me take a step step back and let's talk about Jesus for a second because Jesus is in a similar situation, um, right? I mean, the Jewish religion existed for a very long time, and then Jesus shows up and starts shaking things up. So he's kind of like in a similar position to fast-forwarding to the time of Muhammad where the Christian religion had existed for 600 years and Muhammad shows up and shakes things up. So there's a parallel between Jesus and Muhammad. And, uh, you know, the Quran does a good job of putting them in the same category as a prophet or a messenger, and that explains that. Um, but, the, but the question I posed to Mejdi about what makes... Uh, the Islamic message different from the Christian message, and what did Muhammad teach that Jesus didn't teach, and you know that that sort of thing. That the question could be asked the same: Is it why was it necessary for Jesus to show up, and what was he changing? Right? What what was the message Jesus was bringing that the Jews weren't already didn't already know, that didn't already come from Noah or Abraham or you know one of these one of these other prophets. Um, has anybody ever asked you that question? Do you have any, do you have any as a, as a Christian? If I'm speaking to you know uh, any any Christians out there, do you have any way of answering that question? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but it's not an easy one, right? Because if you're a Christian, you believe in the Jewish laws and the Jewish tradition for the most part. Jesus was a Jew. We we, we forget that, you know. So so what is it that's that Jesus? separates from the rest of the Jewish religion. What is it? What is it? So there must be something. And I don't know how equipped I would have been to answer that question when I was talking to Meshdi had he asked me the same question, you know? 
But what I think it is here is, and again, you'll see when we start reading the quotes, is that the the Quran takes issue with some basic Christian tenets. And if you were a Muslim and you were reading the Quran and you weren't reading the Bible, what you would hear is all these things that Jesus said and all these things that uh, Christians believe about Jesus that are wrong. Right? So if you, if you were a Muslim and you only ever saw the quotes from of Jesus from the Quran and a bunch of a bunch of quotes about what Christians believe about Jesus that's wrong you might not ever read the Bible to see what those things are you might not you might not even be interested in it right why would you even waste your time reading a bunch of false things that Jesus said coming from the New Testament when you could just read the Quran and hear the real things that Jesus said see what i mean so i think i think someone like Mejdi and maybe any kind of ordinary faithful Muslim is not well equipped to answer that question. What did Muhammad teach that Jesus didn't? How did Muhammad change the religion, you know, significantly? Because they never have an opportunity or a reason or justification to go to the Bible and read what Jesus said in the Bible or what he did in the Bible or how it compares to what the Muslim stories are in the Quran. You know, and and I'm not criticizing, you know, Muslims for that. I'm not criticizing Mejdi for that. Because I I hadn't done that either, right? I didn't I didn't do a thorough job of going through the Quran and looking at the passages about Jesus and seeing how he's portrayed and the stories portrayed and how it differs. I never did that, and why would I? Because I had the Bible in front of me my my whole life, telling me you know this is the story. And by the way, it's six hundred years older than the Quran. So you know, going back to my appreciation for the ancient, I would have no reason to want to open up a Quran to see what Jesus said. 600 years after he said them because I have a, a, a book called the Gospels that are much closer to the to the actual time Jesus lived so that's going to be the pure knowledge that's going to be where I'm going to find the truth so that's kind of where we began on the Islam episode we did a couple a couple of episodes back all right so before I go into actually reading this stuff I want to tell you something else that popped in my mind that kind of got this whole episode started. And it was, if you remember, going back, you know, weeks or months, we were doing episodes on, uh, we were doing episodes on all kinds of ancient religions and Greek philosophy. And one of the characters from Greek religion, ancient Greek religion, is a god called Apollo. Now, I talked about Apollo before. He's an interesting god. You know, he's the messenger of the gods. He's the, he's the god of the spirit that brings knowledge and, and messages from the Almighty, from the heavenly realm, from the, the, the gods, from, from the will of God, you know, down to earth so where they can be implemented. It's, it's Apollo who's doing that. We talked about Apollo before. I mean, we talked about how, how interestingly the images of some of those Greek gods uh, relate to images from Judeo-Christian mythology. I mean, you can look at a goddess like Nike, uh, Greek goddess, you know, that the shoes are named after. You can look at her, and there's no distinction between Nike and an angel. No distinction. Look it up right now. You'll see what I mean. Put in Nike goddess. Don't just put Nike, you're going to get shoes. Nike goddess, you're going to see it. Apollo was, was much like that. Rather than having wings you know, like, like a bird coming out of his back, Apollo had wings on his helmet and wings on his, on his heels, on his shoes. And, he, and he, f- he flew, you know, he flew up and down between heaven and earth bringing messages down from God to man, that kind of thing. And, and it, you may have noticed, you know, you know, he's referred to as the messenger of the gods, 
and I guess the connection where this comes into me is that that's that's how Islam refers to prophets. They refer to them as messengers of God. And I thought that was interesting. You know, we might use the word prophet, but what that means, at least specifically in Islam, is a messenger from God. And that's what Apollo was. <laughs> so it's funny that you have this ancient, ancient, ancient belief about something supernatural, something spiritual that connects and communicates between God and man. And that's what a prophet is supposed to be. And so there, there isn't as big a gulf between these ancient, ancient people that worship many gods and have these complex religions like the ancient Greeks did, and groups like the Jews or the Christians or the Muslims that believed in only one god. And we always think about these, this fracture between people that worship many gods and people that worship one as making them so different. They're so different, you know? They have these high-level conceptualizations of God that, that could not be more different. There, there's no synthesis possible between them. They're, they went different routes, you know. And then, paradoxically, it doesn't matter which route you look at. If you look under the hood of the polytheistic religions of the Greeks and the Egyptians and the, you know, Scandinavians, or if you look at the monotheistic religions like the Jews and the Christians, in both cases, you see this image of a messenger of God, of something that connects um, the sp supernatural, spiritual world of, of, of the gods to the material world of man. And whether we're calling that Apollo or angels or prophets or messengers. So there's a, there's a thread that connects kind of the most ancient religion and how we thought in those early, early days to the most modern religions in Christianity and Islam. And I got to thinking about that um, because you can see somebody like, you know, it doesn't have to be Apollo. I mean, in the, in the ancient Greek world, it doesn't have to be a god that doesn't have a body in a material existence. You could think about something like the priestess at Delphi, who we've talked about. You know, if you were an ancient Greek, Greek you would go to the temple of Delphi. That, by the way, that was the temple of Apollo at Delphi. And you would speak to the priestess and she would tell you your future. She would tell you your fate. She was a messenger of the gods so she was somebody who was in in between she was a she was a she she was a go-between she was a a object that existed somehow halfway between heaven and earth and could communicate to other mortals what what the the gods had for them you know it was typically typically it was their fate or their future so even in that kind of polytheistic world of the ancient Greeks, you see an idea like Apollo, and you even see an idea like the priestess of Apollo. And what's happening here is Apollo's coming down from heaven and whispering into her ear, and only she can hear the words of God. And then she can turn around and tell those words to a human being. So she's the intermediary. She's the messenger. So I ask you, how different is that? from the idea of Jesus, or Moses, or Muhammad. You know, somebody like Moses who gets, who gets the Ten Commandments from, from God, or the burning bush speaks to him, or, you know, Muhammad who goes to meditate and, uh, and has visions, you know, like... How different is that? So I, I, don't, I don't think it's very different at all. I don't think it's different at all. I think we're talking about the same sort of thing, and we have a thread that goes 
all the way back to the earliest times that, that tell us that. And you've seen things like this. I mean, you've seen stories in the Bible about somebody having a dream and the dream being interpreted and uh, somebody having a revelation or a vision. And sometimes they're weird and symbolic. Sometimes they're like the book of Ezekiel where it's wheels within wheels and, you know, uh, a creature with with four faces, one on each side. And, you know, some of them are angels, some of them are animals and some of them are human and, you know, that kind of thing. That these revelations, these messages that we get from heaven, you know, sometimes they seem like they're straightforward. Sometimes they seem like they're encoded or something, like Jesus talking in parables. Like you, you know, you can't quite understand. You have to, you have to interpret it. You have to unravel it. You have to, you have to crack the code. And that's definitely the case with interpreting dreams, or, or you know, I, I guess, I guess what I'm asking here in this conversation is what, what way, what is the way in which messages come from God to to man, if, it, if that's possible, if that happens. How does it happen? And those are the kind of things we think about. We think about information that's coming to us on this material, physical world from someplace we don't know where, right? Some mysterious place. And that could be a fantasy. It could be a dream. You know, it could be a daydream. It could be an idea that strikes you. But usually those things happen in ways that aren't straightforward. They're, they're, they happen in, like, just think about a dream that, that you have and the images in the dream. You know, on the surface, they're crazy. They don't make any sense at all. But when you get to thinking about them, oftentimes you can piece out what it points to or what it, what it seems to be saying to you or something like that. You know, when you hear people say that they receive a revelation from God, it's not at all clear that that is the booming voice of God telling you exactly what you need to know. You know, what what it is usually is something like what you see in the book, the book of Ezekiel or something. It's it's uh, you know or, or Isaiah. It's a s- symbolic message that has meaning clearly, but it's not clear what that meaning is, and it has to be interpreted. And there's a way of thinking about that, like we've done before we've, when we're talking about Jordan Peterson in psychology, where you can see. There are things like that that seem to come from your unconscious. You know, and they strike you in your dreams, or they strike you when you least expect it. They strike you with an idea. And sometimes they have real relevance. You know, it, maybe it's something that you're struggling to understand. Maybe it's something you're struggling to get over, you know, psychologically. There's a, you know, um, a trauma of some kind. And uh, you can't stop thinking about this or that or the other. And suddenly it occurs to you that it has some connection to this trauma and you know you have some understanding that you didn't used to have and this is the same kind of thing that you would hear from the priestess of Delphi or, or somebody from the bible interpreting the king's dream okay so that's kind of where it began it was it was kind of coming to this conclusion that even back you know in the earliest times with somebody like Apollo or the priestess of Delphi, that you see this idea existing in religion, that it's possible to have somebody as a go-between, somebody who receives messages or information from God or from some supernatural place, the unconscious or whatever you want to call it, and that it, and that it can be bestowing some actually beneficial information to somebody here, here, here and now. So what are these revelations? What was the one that Jesus got? What was the one that Mohammed got? You know, has anybody ever asked you that question? Have you ever wondered? 
what what is the revelation that Jesus received that he that <clears throat> that made him so confident to go and preach the things he did and to say and do the things he did that ultimately got him killed what was that do you know do you know i'm serious even if you're a christian and you grew up in the church do you know it's not clear it's not taught and that, I'm not saying it's not taught at all, but it's not the emphasis. It's like what Jesus preached and what he said and what he believed, it's kind of hard to even tell. And if you go to church, you're going to hear, some, you're going to hear something like, well, something that a Muslim would object to more than anything. You're going to hear something like, you know, and maybe not said in these exact words, but something like it's not as important what Jesus said and taught. You know, they're all parables and hard to understand anyway. What was important is that is who Jesus was and what he did. All right? If you're a Christian, you believe Jesus was God, that he died for for us, right? That's what you're that's what you're supposed to believe. And so, you know, if that's if that's this incredible supernatural sacrifice that's that's literally the salvation of of all of humanity for, for na- from now till eternity. And that's what it's supposed to be. Uh, does it matter what he taught? You know, does it matter what he said? If that's what he is, that's what's important. Now, fuck that. I want to know what he said. I want to know what he taught. That's why I spent so much time going through the Gnostic Gospels and talking about those, and we're, we're going to talk about them a little bit today as well. Um, I want to know what he taught and what he was doing to change what, what he believed already as a Jew. And what did Muhammad teach? And what was he trying to change, you know, Christians into? Because that's... That's what he was trying to do. All right, so let's talk about Jesus first. Uh, I probably don't have to. I don't. I don't have to highlight all of this stuff for you, but maybe I'll just give you a high level. Thinking about Jesus and what he did and what was written down in the Gospels, he did some interesting stuff. Um, some stuff that you might consider revolutionary in terms of the religion. Um, we know that he did things like he argued with the priests. And he did it even as a child. He was arguing like. You know the Torah. He was arguing the law with the priests. You know, <laughs> that's an that's an arrogant thing to do. Um, you know, but but you're supposed to see that Jesus has this purity and this um, and this you know confidence in his and what he's saying that even the priests don't seem to have. Uh, and he he had that even when he was young. And then when he was older, he did things like overturning the money changers' tables in front of the temple, and you know. He even did things like performing miracles, which you might think, uh, you might not think in that in that same context. But remember, performing miracles is part of what got him killed. That's what got him, you know, prosecuted and killed, um, because people don't do miracles. So that's revolutionary as well uh, to go and do things like that. So I want to read a couple of um, I want to read a passage from Matthew. Um, Jesus said this in Matthew five. He says, "Think not that I am come to destroy the law." Or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So that's interesting. You know, when I said, when I asked the question, what did Jesus come and teach that changed what the Jews were, were believing and teaching? What, what was it that this messenger came to say to us that, that, that needed to be said or to correct something that needed to be corrected? What was that? And Jesus himself says, I am not come to destroy the law. That's the Old Testament, that's the Torah. Or the prophets, I am come, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He says, so that's interesting. 
it's sort of like he's not coming to add or take away or correct anything. It's kind of kind of how that sounds on the surface. Um, now I'm going to pivot to the Quran for a second. I'm going to give you a couple of similar passages from the Quran. So in the Quran they have uh, ch- chapters and they're called surahs. S U R A H. Surah five seventy seven begins like this. Say, O people of the book. Okay, now I have to stop for a second and explain what that means. People of the book is a designation that the Islamic uh, world gives to to other people that aren't Muslim that they believe received legitimate revelations from God and had prophets, you know, legitimate prophets, and that includes Christians and it includes Jews and it includes Zoroaster- Zoroastrians from Iran. Um, generally, those are the people considered people of the book, and they're given like higher standing than than other pagan people. They're considered people that you know, received a revelation from God just like the Muslims, and so they're something more like brothers. All right, so it goes like this. Say, O people of the book, exceed not in your religion the bounds of what is proper, trespassing beyond the truth, nor follow the vain desires of people who went wrong in times gone by, who misled many and strayed themselves from the even way. All right, so this is interesting. He, he's basically saying that there have been people in the past that came and pulled people off the path of truth. He's talking about religion, so it's hard for me to imagine that these people aren't messengers and prophets just like him, but he's saying that those people have come in the past and have taken people down the wrong path. So what he's, what is, what he's done is to come to show you the way, the correct way. And he says this thing in here about not to exceed the bounds of your religion, what is proper. And there's a few passages in the Quran that talk about that, that talk about exceeding the religion or exceeding the truth. And what seems to be said here is Muhammad is basically saying the Christians are adding things to the religion. That's what he means by exceed the bounds of your religion. They're adding things to it that are wrong. So this passage is aimed at the Christians, but Muhammad doesn't just limit it to them. He says, you know, there have been people in, in the past that have done this and have led many astray. Now the same, uh, let's see here, sort of uh, 43 to 63 here, it goes like this. When Jesus came with clear signs, he said, Now have I come to you with wisdom, and in order to make clear to you some of the points on which ye dispute, therefore fear God and obey me. Okay, so here we have the Quran. And these are the words of Jesus, right, being spoken. And Jesus says, um, I have come with clear signs. That just means, you know, I've, I've, I've come and proved that I'm a messenger of God. And, and we know that because he performed miracles and did things like that. So well, that's what he means when he says, I came with clear signs. Like, you should know I am who I say I am. And he says, I have come to you with wisdom in order to make clear to, some, uh, to you some of the points which you dispute. Okay, so Jesus is coming, according to the Quran, to, to tell the believers what is true and right on the things that they're disagreeing on in terms of the religion. Now, what that was is still not clear. What it was that Jesus was saying when he showed up and said, look, Jews, this is what you're doing wrong, or this is what you're missing. It's not clear what that is, but this is what the Quran is pointing out. And then I got two more of these. Um... Surah 57 starts in uh, 26, goes like this. And we sent Noah and Abraham 
and established in their line prophethood and revelation. And some of them were on right guidance, but many of them became rebellious transgressors. Then in their wake, we followed them up with others of our apostles. We sent after them Jesus, the son of Mary, and bestowed upon him the gospel. And we ordained in the hearts of those who followed him compassion and mercy. But the monasticism which they invented for themselves, we did not prescribe for them. We commanded only they, uh, only the seeking of the good pleasure of God, but that they did not foster and they should have done. And then lastly, sort of 61, 8, their intention is to, distinct, is to extinguish God's light by blowing with their mouths. But God will complete the revelation of his light, even though the unbelievers may detest it. All right, so what am I, what am I telling you all this for? These passages, I thought, did a really good job of explaining what it was that the Quran is saying, it's doing. Um, specifically with the Christian revelation and what the Christians have wrong. And there's so much of that that is focused on that. Um, and what he does is he talks about a lineage of prophets from Noah you know, to Abraham, and he says he established prophethood and revelation so that the people in this line are going to continually or have the ability to receive revelations from God. Um, and he says many of them came and gone, and some of them went the wrong way, and he calls them rebellious transgressors. And you get, you get the feeling that that term is being extended to Christians because they believe they're like what he's describing, um, people who went off the path that Noah and Abraham described. They went off the path in one, one way or another. Now, what is the off-the-path stuff? Well, we're definitely going to find that out as we keep reading. But the last one there in Soda 68 where he says, that that people will try to will try to extinguish God's light, and by that he means he means the will of God that's being expressed to us through through these messengers, and that people who are the who he calls these rebellious transgressors, they're going to try to blow that light out. He says, but God will complete the revelation of His light, right? So there's no stopping it. Um, there's no stopping it, regardless of how you might try, and you can see like you can see how. It's especially in the Christian example, how the people tried. You know, how did the priests, the Pharisees, how did the Roman authorities uh, treat the revelation of God that was Jesus? Right? They tried to blow him out. They did. Right? They they put him in jail and they hung him from a cross until he died. Um, but he, but again, he's saying Muhammad is saying that even even though you do that, that you're never going to be able to stop the revelation. Whatever it was that Jesus was, that's just going to keep coming. It's just going to keep coming. There's nothing you can do to stop it. All right. So the first question I asked, um, sort of, was talking about Christianity, like the way that I was talking to Mejdi about Islam. And I asked, what, what was it that Jesus was doing? What was he teaching that the Jews didn't already believe and teach? Right. What was the message from the messenger? So let's uh, let's read a little bit of the Bible together. All right, Matthew five has a couple of interesting quotes. Let me read them to you. Jesus said, "Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whatsoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also." 
And I'm going to read the, the second one before I stop. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. All right, so what's Jesus, what's Jesus saying here? Well, he's doing some bold shit at the moment. What he's doing is pointing to two very important, you know, uh, laws from the from the Jewish Old Testament, from from the Torah. He's he's going back and he's saying what God said to us in the before. He said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? If somebody does something to you or takes something from you, you have the right to take something equal from them. That's what, that's what it means. That's what the law of God said. That's what Moses said, right? And Jesus is saying, you've heard what Moses said, but I say unto you that whoever shall smite you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. So no longer is Jesus saying an eye for an eye. He's saying if someone takes your eye, you give him your other eye. That's revolutionary. And can you imagine doing that? So Jesus is overturning the law here in some way. Even better, though, that the next one where he says, you've all heard you shouldn't commit adultery. Yeah, that was Moses too. That might have been one of the Ten Commandments, right? That's a pretty, pretty important thing. But Jesus says, you might have heard what Moses told you about adultery, but I say unto you that even if you look at a woman and you lust after her, you have committed that same sin in your heart, even though you haven't touched her. So Jesus is taking it a step further than, than Moses did. You know, when I was younger, I always thought, and I'm not sure this is wrong, but I always thought that when Jesus said that, you know, when he said, uh, the Bible, you know, the Old Testament says not to commit adultery. But what I'm telling you is, you don't have to actually commit adultery. If you've just thought about it in your head and, and wanted it, that that's bad enough that you've committed the same sin. And the idea there is like, you know, put yourself in the, in the mind of a teenage boy. You've got zero control over the thoughts of your mind, especially to do with sex. You're not, you're not able to stop yourself from lusting after somebody. I mean, you... you you gain some control over that as you get older, but in the beginning, good luck. It's not in your power. You're going to be having lustful thoughts. It's not in your power. So I always thought that what Jesus was saying here was that, look, it's not good enough to try really hard and to do good deeds. It's not good enough. It's like, you know, even if you even if you've lust, lust after this woman, that you, you've sinned just the same as somebody who's actually had sex with her. So it's like, what is, it, what is that telling you? It's telling you that you can't avoid being sinful. Like, you can't avoid it. Um, and that certainly rang true to me when I was a 15-year-old kid. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Nothing I can do about that. Um, so that makes me sinful, and there's nothing I can do about it. But see, that kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with the Christian message. Right, if you're a Christian, you believe that that Jesus' death and resurrection was your salvation, and if you can if you can accept it, right, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter that you can't control who you're lusting after. It doesn't matter that you can't control you can't help but be sinful because you've got that you've got that golden ticket to heaven, something like that. So that goes hand in hand as far as I'm concerned. 
Again, I don't know if that's the wrong or the right interpretation. I'm just, tell, <clears throat> just telling you what's occurred to me. But the important thing here is that Jesus is saying very, very bold things in the Bible. And I don't know if you ever noticed or ever if anybody ever put that to you. But Jesus did legitimately say, this is what the prophets had have told us in the past. <clears throat> and I'm telling you something different. Now, I, I ask you, does that go against what Jesus said uh, in Matthew 5, where he says, Think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Right? He's not destroying. He's coming here to fulfill. But what he's done, in some ways, is destroyed the, the law, the, at least parts of the old law, because he's amended them. He's changed them. You know, it's, they're still in, the changes are still in the spirit of the law. You know, it's not, so maybe, maybe what, what he's done is clarified, you know, maybe what he's done is clarified what Moses said. You know, that adultery um, is a sin. We can talk about why. It's not, not really important right now. But that, that, that that sin is something that you can't avoid even if you don't act on it. You know? It's interesting. All right, then we got Matthew 23. Matthew 23 says, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe. That observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. Okay, so I know this is the King James Version, so it's hard to understand, but what he's saying here is that because the scribes sit in the seat of Moses, um, that you have to respect them and do what they and do what they tell you to do. He says, but don't he says, but understand that they don't do what they say, that they don't follow through, that they're all talk, that they're not doing as they say. So you should do as they say, but observe that they don't do as they say. So that's interesting, because that's starting to undermine, undermine the priesthood. So not only is Jesus now, you know, making amendments to the, to the Ten Commandments, but now he's also throwing the priesthood under the bus. All right, and he goes on. He says, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, but all their works they do, they do to be seen of men. So he's saying there, that's why you should not do as the priests do, because they're only pretending to be holy so that people see them being holy. Right? They're not genuine. So that that's a criticism of the religion as well. It's got to be genuine. You can't just go through the motions. You have to believe. You can't just go. You can't just do what your father did and your grandfather did and pretend like it, like it is still valuable and and alive. It's not, unless you unless you're genuine. All right. Let's flip over to Mark. Mark says, uh, Mark seven says, and he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him, because it entereth not into his heart, but into his belly, and goeth out into the drought, purging all meats? And he said, That which cometh out of man, that defileth the man. So what is he saying here? So Jesus is saying, It's not what you put in your body that defiles you, right? That's what the Jews believed. They said, you can't eat pork. You can't eat uh, shellfish. The God, God doesn't want you to eat those unclean things. It says so in the Old Testament. And Jesus shows up and says, 
nothing you put in your mouth is going to defile you because it's going into your body, not into your heart. It's the things that come out of you that defile you, the things that come out of your heart, right? That's the, it's the shit you do that you know you're not supposed to do. It's the shit you do that, you're, that your conscious beats you up for. That's the stuff that defiles you. So Jesus is saying that. Well, that's a pretty big difference, right? So Jesus is changing the common understanding of the Jewish laws by saying that you can eat whatever you want to eat. That's not the point. That wasn't the point. So it's not clear what the point, what the point was to have that law to begin with, but Jesus has overturned it. Now he's overturned it with the authority to overturn it. Who has the authority to overturn the laws that God gave to Moses? Well, maybe God himself, and that's what the Christians teach. And that's exactly what the Muslims take issue with. So I don't know how to, I don't know how to come to terms with that. Uh, but let's go ahead and read one final one from Mark. This is chapter 2, and it goes like this. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, have you have ye never read what David did when he had need and was hungered, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and did eat the shewbread, which is not lawful to eat but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. I mean... <laughs> So the hair standing up my arms again, as it does often, often on this podcast. But that's bold. I mean, that's Jesus. That's Jesus standing there telling the priests, you know, y- y- you know, yes, I broke the Sabbath, but don't you remember David did it as well? And don't you remember God was perfectly fine with that? And don't you know that's not the fucking point? The Sabbath wasn't made for man. Or rather, rather the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Jews were taking that way too seriously, way too literally, and missing the the point. And Jesus is saying, "Hey, there's supposed to be a point with the Sabbath. It's not about just obeying the law. It's about setting time aside to to memorialize creation and to and to appreciate you know your existence. It's, it's not about it's not about the letter of the law." All right, so can you see, reading through some of the actual words of Jesus, where we're not talking about Jesus, you know, in the dogma of the Christian religion. Jesus is God, and, you know, his sacrifice gives you salvation and end of story. No, there was way more to it. When Jesus actually spoke, he said stuff like this. He said, look, there is no reason for you to prohibit what you're eating and putting in your body. You're missing the point. You know, there is no reason for you to, um, for you to, um, to take what the, what the priests say, you know, without question. You have to look at the priests and how they live and judge accordingly. You know, all kinds of interesting stuff. And, and, and not to mention, you know, what he said about the Ten Commandments and adultery and turning the other cheek. So all of this stuff is legitimate changes. You might call them liberal changes um, to what the Jewish religion was teaching and what the priests were upholding and he criticized them too. You know, it's not accidental that the priesthood doesn't exist in Christianity apart from, you know, the Catholic the Catholic Church. 
We don't have a priesthood exactly. So that's a change, right? What about Muhammad? What about Muhammad? What did Muhammad teach that was supposed to change the Jews and the Christians' mind, that was supposed to correct where they went wrong? What was the message that Muhammad received from God? Does anybody know? Well, we're about to find out. All right, so let's do this again. All right, so Surah 2, um, verse 86 starts like this. Now, by the way, you saw this earlier, but I'll have to mention that the Quran, when it refers to God, it, it refers to God in the plural. It says we, when God is talking about himself, we. Now, you're going to see that a lot, and you've already seen that, but I just want to point out that that's something that happens in the Old Testament. So, you know, the Jewish Bible does talk about God as plural. So when God creates mankind in the Garden of Eden, he, uh, the Bible says um, that that they created human beings, male and female, they created him. So it's like the the, they, and the us, all those langu- languages used in the Old Testament as though God were plural, which is a very, very interesting thing all by itself. We could do a whole other podcast on, but I just want to point out when I'm starting to read this, it's going to start we, and it means God. So here we go. We gave Moses the book and followed him up with a succession of apostles. We gave Jesus, the son of Mary, clear signs and strengthened him with the Holy Spirit. All right, so I want to point out that sentence could have come from the Bible. It could have come from the, the New Testament. It's not, there's nothing there that looks unusual. Um, you know, we gave Moses the book, and then f- so that's the law, and then followed him up with a succession of apostles. So you get more and more messengers coming after Moses, including Jesus, the son of Mary. And it says, God gave Jesus clear signs and strengthened him with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so those clear signs are the power to do miracles, raise people from the dead, that kind of thing. Walking on water, we, we know that you know those stories exist in the, in, the, in the Bible. And strengthened him with the Holy Spirit. Now, I just have to say, this is interesting. Because, well, we'll, we'll see in a bit. The, the Muslims take issue, obviously, with Jesus being considered God. They take issue with the Trinity, the idea that, Jesus, that, that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit... That, that, that might be some sort of way of understanding what God is as, as a multiplicity, as three things instead of one. Those are things that, that Islam takes issue with. But here, in Surah 2, they say that God strengthened Jesus with the Holy Spirit. So they, not only do they use this phrase, Holy Spirit, which comes from the Trinity, um, they the Quran puts it firmly into Jesus, so that Jesus was strengthened with the Holy Spirit. And I wonder what their understanding is of the Holy Spirit. You know? Because they do use, and that you're going to see in just a minute, the Word of God. And the Word of God, that Logos that we talk about from the Gospel of John, that's something like the Holy Spirit. You know, it was the Spirit that was there on the face of the waters in Genesis when the, when God creates the universe. So Christians make that connection, but I don't know that Muslims do. So the fact that they're using this phrase, Holy Spirit, seems very weird to me. And I just wonder what the explanation, what the understanding is of that in, in Islam. All right, so Surah 2 has another, another good uh, piece. It goes like this. Say ye, we believe in God, and the revelation given to us, and to Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and the tribes, and that given to Moses and Jesus, and that given to all prophets from their Lord, we make no difference between one and another of them, 
and we bow to God. Okay, so there's interesting stuff here. It goes along with the, the phrase, people of the book, that we read earlier, where, where Muslims give special status to people who received revelation from God. And here in this passage, you can see the revelation extends from, you know, Abraham, uh, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, the tribes, which are all the tribes of Israel he's referring to, um, and uh, Moses and Jesus. So all of those people. And he says, given to all prophets from their Lord, as though he's saying there might be others and, you know, they're legitimate too. And then he says something interesting. He says, we make no difference between one and another of them. So no difference between one prophet of God or another, even if that prophet is Muhammad or Jesus or Abraham, all of which represent three different religions as far as I'm concerned. That's interesting. It's also something that gets challenged in the Quran. So this is one passage that seems to say, you know, all prophets are, are, are equal, that all messages are holy, that, that are coming from, from God through these messengers, and that there's no one of them better than any other one. And, you know, the Quran and other places says very different things, you know, negative things about Christians and Jews and, and pagans. So there's some contradictions, but this is interesting. So the next chapter, Surah 3, um, verse 45, starts like this. Behold, the angel said, O Mary, God giveth thee glad tidings of a word from him. His name will be Christ Jesus, the Son of Mary, held in honor in this world and the hereafter, and of the company of those nearest to God. All right, so, so I mean, obviously Mary and Jesus exist in the Bible, and you can see this, or excuse me, in the Quran, just as they do in the Bible, and you can see this passage parallels the Bible. I mean, it sounds like something from the Bible. But here's what I want to point out. Here in the beginning it says, God giveth thee glad tidings of a word from him. Now, a word from him, again, a word of God, that's something like, again, from the Greek, from the Gospel of John, we're going to call logos. That's the thing that, that we equate to the Spirit of God in the book of Genesis that was there in the beginning. And so the Christian's understanding of that is that the word of God became flesh, and that was Jesus. And the Quran seems to be saying the same thing, that God gives a word from him to Mary. And so, again, I'm wondering, what is the, is the Muslim understanding of this word? Word of God and Jesus being a word of God. Um, all right, so uh, okay, so there's it. This extends. It goes like this. She said, "So this is Mary. Oh my Lord, how shall I have a son when no man hath touched me?" He said, "Even so, God createth what He willeth. When He hath decreed a plan, He but saith to it, be, and it is." So this is just Mary saying, "How how should I have a, a, a you know a baby? I'm a virgin," and uh, the Quran says, much like the Bible says, um, that God uh, whatever God wills, He does. And so you know, there's a supernatural explanation there. And then it goes on. It says, "And God will teach him." So he's talking about Jesus, the book of wisdom, the law, and the gospel, and appoint him an apostle to the children of Israel. With this message, I have come to you with a sign from your Lord, and that I make for you out of clay, as it were, the figure of a bird, and breathe into it, and it becomes a bird by God's leave. And I heal those born blind, and the lepers, and I quicken the dead. All right, so a couple things I have to say here. First of all, this story, this this thing about 
Jesus making making things out of clay, birds out of clay and breathing life into them. We talked about that on the last the last Islam episode, that that is a Gnostic story from early, early Christianity that never made it into the Bible. Um, but before I talk about that, I want to skip up to the beginning where it says that God t- teaches Jesus the book of wisdom, the law, and the gospel. So you have this word gospel that's being used, just like the word of God is being used in the Quran. And I'm wondering if the definition, if their understanding of it is the same as ours. Because when we say when we say gospel, we... we Understand that to mean the good news. And what is the good news? Right? From a Christian, the good news is the salvation that you have as a consequence of Jesus' existence. That's the good news that the that you know the evangelists are spreading around. So what is the good news according to Islam? You know, if Jesus is bringing the gospel, what is the gospel? What is he teaching? All right, so this bit here where he says, I have come to you with a sign from your Lord, and that I make for you out of clay, as it were, the figure of a bird, and breathe into it, and it becomes a bird by God's leave. And I heal those born blind and the lepers, and I quicken the dead. So he's, so he's saying, look, all of these miracles that, that Jesus is, is showing, that these are signs from God that he's legitimate. And, and I wasn't able to do this last time, so I want to tell you now, story about Jesus making these clay pigeons and breathing life into them, it comes from the, uh, the infancy gospels that are apocryphal. They're not included in the Bible, and there's many of them. And they're very old. You know, some of them go back 100 years or 200 years after Jesus was born. They've certainly been around a lot, lot longer than the Quran, and in fact, some of them may have been around longer than some of the, the gospels we have in the Bible. So I want to read to you uh, this excerpt from the gospel, this infancy gospel that corresponds. It goes like this. When the child Jesus was five years of age, and there had been a shower of rain, he took from the bank of the stream some soft clay and formed out of it twelve sparrows. And there were other boys playing with him. But a certain Jew, seeing the things which he was doing on the Sabbath day, went presently away and told his father Joseph. Then Joseph came to the place where he was, and when he saw him, called to him and said, Why dost thou that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day? Then Jesus, clapping together the palms of his hands, called the sparrows and said to them, Go, fly away, and while ye live, remember me. So the sparrows fled away, making a noise. So I just want to tell you here, guys, this story I just read, it's interesting. I don't know what you make of it, but that was a story that was floating around in the early days of Christianity that people believed about Jesus when he was young. Um, and it seems like he sort of got out of trouble here by getting rid of the evidence, like he was doing work on the Sabbath, and he wasn't supposed to be doing work on the Sabbath. So he claps his hands together, and the evidence of these clay pigeons that he made, they just fly away. So, so, may, so maybe it's, you know, maybe that's what's going on. Maybe Jesus is sort of getting himself out of trouble here. Maybe this is referring to him doing miracles long before he was ever baptized by John the Baptist, which, again, miracles don't happen in the Bible till much, much later. So there's some, there's something about this that's important. And I guess what I want to point out is that something like this survived in Islam, something that was from the early days of Christianity that's disappeared, that you and I never heard of until, until we read the infancy gospel. Um, and there it is in the Quran. Uh, and, I, and I tell you that also just to also show you that Jesus in the Quran is believed to have committed 
all sorts of miracles, you know, bringing things that aren't alive to life, like clay pigeons, just like God did when he made Adam out of clay, and healing the blind and the lepers and bringing people back from the dead. The Quran believes all of this stuff about Jesus. All right, I got more. Um, so verse 50 starts like this. I have come to you to attest the law which was before me and to make lawful to you part of what was before forbidden to you. Okay, so this is interesting because Jesus in the Quran is saying, I have come to uphold the law, but I've also come to make things that were forbidden to you once permitted. So Jesus is changing the law somehow. And if you remember from what we read in uh, Mark and Matthew earlier, he did do that. He absolutely did that. And and it's, it's just interesting that you see the Quran saying that in a way that I don't remember it ever being taught to me in Sunday school, but it does seem to be true. And in and in Islam, you have it as, you know, part of this part of the story. So Jesus is coming to change the law. It goes on, it says, Behold, God said, O Jesus, I will take thee and raise thee to myself, and clear thee of the falsehoods of those who blaspheme. I will make those who follow thee superior to those who reject faith, to the day of resurrection. Then shall ye all return unto me. And I will judge between you of the matters wherein ye dispute. So what I want to point out here is that the Quran says that uh, God will take and raise thee to, to myself. So God's going to take Jesus up to heaven. And that's interesting because, well, he did do that in the Bible. He took certain characters like Enoch as an example. Enoch, he just took him you know, bodily from earth, snatched him up and took him to heaven like an alien abduction. And this is what the Quran says happened to Jesus. So what does the Bible say happened to Jesus? It says he was crucified and died and and resurrected um, and ascended to heaven. So there's something like that here. Uh, But it's also connected to the idea that Jesus didn't, that Jesus may not have died on the cross, which is another thing that the the Muslims will take issue with. And we're going to see that in a minute. Um, but he's basically confirming that Jesus, that God took Jesus bodily up to heaven, um, and that he's he said he's going to correct the falsehoods of people who blaspheme. And I have to imagine that those are people who say things about Jesus or say things about God that are not legit, that are not true. And it, from a, from a Muslim perspective, saying Jesus is God is one of those things. So what a Christian would say, that's one of those one of those no nos. Um, he also says, I will make those who follow thee superior to those who reject faith. So he's saying that Christians will be blessed, you know, um, until, the days, until the day of resurrection. So that there's also this idea of the resurrection of the dead, the, the end of time, just like you see in the Bible, you also see in the Quran. All right, and then the last one from this chapter goes, The similitude of Jesus before God is as that of Adam. He created him from dust, then said to him, Be, and he was. So this is interesting. You can see what's happening here. This is this is the Quran trying to explain 
how it is that Jesus is so important and how it is that he's different from every other human being or from every other prophet if he's supposed to be second only to Muhammad and he's supposed to be there at the end of time during the resurrection. He's very, very important. And if you're going to buy all of that stuff from the Christian tradition, how can you say Jesus is not something special? Or how can you say that Muhammad is, let's say, the capstone of all the prophets, which is what they say, and Jesus isn't? Right? So what did, what did Muhammad do that Jesus didn't do? It seems to me like Jesus did a whole lot of interesting things. Miracles, for one, that Muhammad didn't do. And so what the Quran is saying is the similarity between Jesus and God is not one of, of identity, like the Christians say it is. Jesus isn't God. But so to, the, to the Muslims, he's saying, look, Jesus is like Adam. God created Adam special, created him from clay, and breathed life into it. And that's that's what Jesus was. Jesus was breathed into Mary. So he, so Jesus had a special creation, like Adam and Eve had a special creation. And that's what makes Jesus different from everybody else. And from all, all of the other prophets. You know, even Muhammad didn't have a special birth like that. So it's interesting. All right, so chapter 4, uh, there's a piece uh, deep into it. It's verse 155, and it goes like this. They have incurred divine displeasure, they that rejected the sign of God, they that slew the messengers in defiance of right, they that said, our hearts are the wrappings which preserve God's word, we need no more. They that said in boast, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the apostle of God, but they killed him not, nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them, nay, God raised him up unto himself, and there is, no, there is none of the people of the book but must believe in him before his death. And on the day of judgment, he will be a witness against them. Okay, so that's pretty amazing. So he's talking in the beginning about how messengers come. They show signs, signs of their you know, being sent from God, like Jesus doing, doing miracles, and people kill them anyway. And they do that in defiance of God. And they say things to defend themselves like, our hearts are the wrappings which preserve God's word. We need no more. And what he's saying there is people who say, look, in our hearts we know the truth. Or we have that, we have that intuition. Um, we don't need prophets. We don't need messengers. We know, we know the truth when we see it. And then he says, and those people, that, those people who say that they killed Jesus. And then, of course, the Muslims provide an alternate explanation. They say they didn't kill him. And they didn't crucify him. It was just made to appear that they did. And instead, God took him up to heaven. So there's this, there's this insistence by, by the Muslims that Jesus, even though he raised people from the dead, we already talked about that, he didn't raise himself from the dead. In fact, he didn't die. He was just taken up by God. And I wonder, because obviously that's part of what is the sticking point with Christians and they're you know identifying Jesus with God that that the Muslims aren't going to go with that but it's interesting it's like um, like I said if if Jesus can do miracles and in fact was breathed into into Mary by God himself and can raise people from the dead why couldn't he why couldn't he come back to life you know why is it important that he escaped death and and torture um, I don't know I don't know but it just sort of seems like the Muslims think it, it was below uh, a person of such high standing and that, you know, if anybody said that he was tortured and, and killed in this terrible, demeaning way, that they must be wrong. So you have this other explanation here. I think that's interesting. 
I'd like to know how far back it goes. And I know there were some Gnostic groups in the early days of Christianity that believed something like this, that God, that Jesus wasn't killed, that maybe somebody else was a stand-in and, and it was some other apostle that was killed or something like that. So it's, the Muslims aren't the only ones, but it's interesting. And then chapter 4 has another bit that goes on like this. O people of the book, commit no excess in your religion, nor say of God aught but the truth. Jesus Christ is the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle of God, and his word which he bestowed on Mary, and his spirit proceeding from him. So believe in God and his apostles. Say not, Trinity. Desist. It will be better for you, for God is one. Glory be be to him. Far exalted is he above having a son. To him belong all things in heaven and on earth. All right, so you get the picture. It's like, you know, don't say Trinity. Avoid that idea. Remember God is one, so he couldn't. there couldn't be God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. That doesn't exist. Put that out of your mind. In fact, it wouldn't it be demeaning to think that this supreme supernatural being would have a son like a, you know, like an animal? like an insect or like a human being d- does, right? God didn't have a son. So that's the way that the, that the Muslims are, are combating that. They're saying, just look at it. Just look at look on the surface. That's nonsense. Don't believe that. And, um, and, and but there's also some interesting paradox, you know, like when it says that, uh, that God's word was a spirit bestowed on Mary to make Jesus, that is... I mean, how can you possibly say that that's a different story than the one you see in the Bible of an immaculate conception, the Spirit of God impregnating a woman? That's that's what the Quran is saying is happening. Um, they just <laughs> they just object to the idea that what was placed into Mary's belly was God Himself, and they object to the idea that God might be considered or conceptualized as anything other than one. Now. There's definitely a mystic intuition there about God as one that I'm not going to object with. I think that's that's right on. Um, but I also think it's short-sighted to not think symbolically about the Trinity and the the image that's being described because because I know because I've seen this with with myself that people use images to understand things that are beyond their ability to understand and that it's not. It's not a fool's errand to do that. There, there is a way of coming to understand something slowly by examining images. The same sort of thing like we talked about if you had a dream and you're trying to interpret the images in your dream or some kind of a fantasy or some sort of psychedelic experience or something like that. That the images that you see there, they come from, you, they come from your unconscious, you know, and they do have meaning associated with them. And you can toy that out. So I do think it's short-sighted to throw away the idea of a trinity seemingly because you haven't understood it and you think that it challenges or that it might be misunderstood and challenging something as important to you as the idea that God is one. And that, you know, for all intents and purposes, is the most important message of Islam to to, to the Middle East. God is one. Stop worshiping all your pagan gods. Understand that God is one. All right, so one more in this chapter says, Christ disdaineth not to serve and worship God. Nor do the angels, those nearest to God, those who disdain his worship and are arrogant, he will gather them all together unto himself to answer. So what the Quran is saying here is, even Jesus worshipped God. 
Even Jesus prayed to God. Even the angels do. So this is him saying, this is the Quran saying again, here's evidence that Jesus is not God. Because even Jesus prayed to God. They're not the same. And anybody who thinks they're the same is gonna ha- are going to have to answer to God. Well, who thinks that? Christians do. Right? So this is something that Islam is quote-unquote correcting from the last prophet. All right, so the next chapter has a couple good ones too. Uh, I'll start from the top here. Verse 72 begins, They do blaspheme who say, God is Christ the Son of Mary. But said Christ, O children of Israel, worship God, and, and uh, my Lord and your Lord. Whoever joins other gods with God, God will forbid him the garden, and the fire will be his abode. There will, for the wrongdoers, be no one to help. Okay, so you see this threat now. Now we have this this punishing threat that sort of seems like hellfire, seems like eternal damnation that we're talking about. And why? Um, we, would, we would get that punishment for saying that Jesus is God. And that's what a Christian would say, right? And, he, and uh, what, what Muhammad says in the Quran is, whoever joins other gods with God, he's going to hell, right? So if you're, if you're somebody who's saying that there are other gods, even if that other god is Jesus, who you're saying is the same as God, even that is over the line, and you'll burn in hell for that. The next, the next line goes, They do blaspheme who say, God is one of three and a trinity, for there is no god except one god. If they desist not from their word of, of blasphemy, verily a grievous penalty will befall the blasphemers among them. So remember, hellfire if you believe Jesus is God, hellfire if you believe in a trinity. And here we go. Christ the son of Mary was no more than an apostle. His mother was a woman of truth. They had both to eat their daily food. See how God doth make his signs clear to them, yet see in what ways they are deluded away from the truth. So this is interesting. This this seems to go right to the Catholic uh, the Catholic belief that Mary is something to be, is someone to be venerated, right? So it starts off, it says, Christ the son of Mary was no more than an apostle. So we're not going, and, and, and Mary was a woman of truth. So we're not going to worship Jesus and we're not going to worship Mary. And then the evidence for this, he says, they had both to eat their daily food. Yet see in what ways they are deluded away from the truth. So what he's saying here is Jesus and Mary were mortals, could not survive without eating food, just like you and I. So can't you see they weren't gods? They had to eat like you and I. So this is another another sort of, you know, like like obvious thing to point out, to say, uh, to, to, to build evidence for the changes that Islam is making to Christianity. So the changes so far are Jesus isn't God, so get that out of your mind. There's no such thing as a trinity. God is only one. And, you know, you don't venerate Mary. And, uh, by the way, Jesus and Mary were mortal. They ate food, just like you and I. Okay? All right, a couple more in this chapter. Strongest among men in enmity to the believers will thou find the Jews and pagans. And nearest among them in love to the believers wilt thou find those who say, we are Christians. Because among these men... Excuse among these are men devoted to learning and men who have renounced the world, and they are not arrogant. All right, so there's an interesting thing here, but he's just saying that the people that are most unlike the Muslims 
are the Jews and the pagans. The people that are most like them spiritually are the Christians. So that's interesting. Um, I bring I bring that quote to you only because I wanted you to see some of these things in the Quran that are kind of complementary about Christians. So remember, we're people of the book. We're like brothers with with them, with the with the Muslims, and we're much more like them even than the Jews are. So that's interesting, right? Um, and then he says that the Christians have men of, of learning that you know men that are dedicated to learning and that they aren't arrogant, and maybe that Im- implies that the Jews are arrogant and. You know, what comes to my mind there is the idea of the chosen people, right? And you can see how that cuts to the heart of, of Islam. Because if you know the history, you know that, um, that uh, Ishmael and Isaac, you know, the sons of Abraham, became the fathers of the Jewish people and the fathers of the, of the Islamic people. The Arab people, Ishmael. Ishmael is the is the uh, you know the, the the father, right? So, um, so if you were a Muslim and you believed you came from Abraham just like the Jew, the Jews did, and your founder Ishmael was Isaac's brother, right? You should you got you guys should be cousins. You should be family. Um, so. If you, t- you know, if you, if you talk to a Jew today about this idea of the chosen people, you know, that group does not include the Muslims, right? So if you were living amongst Jews, if you were Muhammad and you're living amongst Jews who say that you are a different group that aren't chosen like, like the Jews are, you might call them arrogant too. You know what I mean? I think that's where this comes from, this desire to be um, accepted by the rest of the people of the book. So the, the Muslims wanted to be accepted as a part of the community that received revelation. They wanted legitimacy for their prophet and their, and their culture. And, you know, it seems to me like there were reasons for them to, um, to, say, to say some things like this about, about the Jews and the pagans. Um, it's just interesting that, that the Christians are not put into that category, but are kind of brought even closer to the, to the true believers. The last two from this chapter go like this. And behold, God will say, O Jesus, the son of Mary, didst thou say unto me, Worship me and my mother as gods and derogation of God? He will say, Glory to thee. Never could I say what I had no right to say. Okay, so this is again going right to the Catholic Church by saying Jesus and Mary should not be worshipped. And Jesus himself in the Quran is saying, I would never have asked for that. I would never have asked for, for me and my, or my mother to be worshipped. It's not right. And the last one is, um, it goes like this. When thou didst take me up, thou wast the watcher over me, and thou art a witness to all things. So this is Jesus confirming in the Quran that God took him bodily up to heaven. So he wasn't crucified, he wasn't resurrected, he was just taken up to heaven. But what's interesting to me is not that. It's actually this, I, this word comes up. And it's capitalized, the watcher, right? So, so God was the watcher, um, and that's something that comes up in uh, it comes up in Gnostic Christianity, but it also comes up in the Bible. This word watchers, it comes in you know, me and me and my buddy Josh may talk more about this when he comes uh, this weekend, and we're doing our next podcast. But but the watchers are basically the angels that watch over. Uh, that watch over human beings, and um, and it's interesting to see that come up and capitalized in the same way you see it in the Gnostic religion. Um, 
in the Quran. So, so the idea of uh, of angels or supernatural creatures or God as as watchers, as people who or as entities that observe and know everything that everything that goes on, and therefore can judge, you know, uh, at the end of at the end of time, whether you whether you belong in heaven or hell, that sort of thing. All right, we're getting close to the end. Um, I want to talk about Surah Six. There's a couple here that are, are worth talking about. So verse 84 goes like this. We gave him Isaac and Jacob, and three we guided. And before him we guided Noah, and among his progeny, David, Solomon, Job, Joseph, Moses, and Aaron, and Zechariah, and John, and Jesus, and Elias, all in the ranks of the righteous, and Ishmael, and Elijah, and Jonas, and Lot. And to all we gave favor above the nations." So I show that to you only just to mention this tradition that the that the Muslims are proposing, that the tradition goes all the way back to Adam or all the way back to Noah, and it goes from the beginning of time all the way up through Jesus and uh, you know uh, Ishmael. So that's the Christians and the Jews, and he says we and to all we gave favor above the nations. So God has blessed specifically the Jews, the Christians, the Muslims. All right, he says, To them and to their fathers and progeny and brethren, we chose them and we guided them to a straight way. So again, when he says we guided them, again, he's, God is saying God guided them, Allah, guided them on a straight way. And that so the straight way is the, is the new religion, whatever that is, whatever the, the Muslims are teaching. It goes on, these were, these were the men to whom we gave the book, the authority and the prophethood, if these, their descendants, reject them, behold, we shall entrust their charge to a new people who reject them not. All right, so you, understand, you, see, what they, you see what he's saying here. He's saying that there's this tradition of prophets going back, you know, to Adam, from Adam all the way down, you know, David, Solomon, you know, John, Jesus, the whole bunch. And if any people who receive those messages reject them or don't understand them well, that we will send a new message to a new people so that you can see they're going to continue to send prophets. God is going to continue to send prophets and there's no, there's no stopping it. So if you reject it or if you, or if you're believing it falsely, they'll just send the truth somewhere else. God will just send another prophet somewhere else. So you can see how the idea of a chosen people kind of goes out the window with that remark. And you also understand that, you know, Muhammad's writing this. So Muhammad is, he's sort of prophesying himself here. He's saying, if the Jews and Christians who've received the prophets don't understand it properly, God will send another one to a new people. And who is that? Muhammad to the Arabs, right? So this is also something new, a new prophet and the justification for a new prophet. And then this goes on, it says, Those were the prophets who received God guidance. This is no less a message for the nations. So the prophets are, are, are bringing messages for everyone, for everyone. It's universal. It's not just for the Arabs or the Christians or the Jews. All right, we'll skip a couple chapters ahead to the ninth. And this, this one I just want to mention because I never heard of it before, and it, I thought it was interesting. It goes like this. The Jews call Uzair a son of God. And the Christians call Christ the Son of God. That is a saying from their mouth. In this they but imitate what the unbelievers of old used to say. God's curse be on them, how they are deluded away from the truth. 
All right, so all that stuff about you know Jews and Christians being um, people of the book and uh, Christians being closest to the Muslims out of out of anybody, all that stuff kind of goes out the window here <laughs> because he's saying. He's saying that the Jews and the Christians are both out of their damn minds for believing uh, that that a person could be God uh, or or whatever. That they're deluded away and away from the truth. That they're no better they're they're no better than the unbelievers of old. So you can imagine somebody like the like the Caesar of Rome who believes he's God. You know, um, and that was the case. You know, in first century first century Palestine. So maybe he's referring to something like that. Um, but this guy Uzair, that he says the Jews called a son of God. I don't. I wasn't actually able to figure out who that is, and it doesn't sound like the Jews even have a tradition of this person that Muhammad is bringing up. But maybe it was a part of a kind of a local tradition, and he was familiar with it from Arab Jews at the time. I don't know. But it's interesting that uh, that he claims that the Jews believed there was some religious figure or or Messiah figure who was a son of God. Um. But again, the, the Bible is, is really not no stranger to that phrase. So the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. That comes from the, that comes from the book of Genesis, talking about the angels, you know. Um, you know, the, the sons of God were also used in the book of Job to talk about the angels gathering, you know, to, uh, uh, to see what happens with Job. You know, so it's not, it's not uncommon to see that. Uh, but but the Muslims are are not okay with that in either case using the word son of God or the son of God uh, from a Christian perspective that those are those are blasphemy. And the last one in this chapter goes like this: they take their priests and their anchorites to be their lords, in in derogation of God, and they take as their lord Christ the son of Mary. Yet they were commanded to worship but one God. There is no God but He. Praise and glory to Him. Far is he from having the partners they associate with him. So, so you can see, obviously, there's still a lot of uh, resistance to the idea of, of uh, God being more than one thing um, in any way. There's, a, there's resistance to um, putting Mary in this, in this um, category where she might be venerated. But even more, he says that they take their priests and their anchorites to be their lords, and what I think that means is something like the veneration of saints. Because in the Catholic Church, you know, they do pray to saints. They do worship saints. Um, even if they would, they would challenge me saying that, they, they do. So that's something that if it existed at the time of Muhammad, and I think maybe it did, this is what he's talking about. It's like, look, God is one. It doesn't include Jesus. It doesn't include saints. It doesn't include Mary. You know, this, this, why are we arguing about this? This is pretty clear. Um, and then he, and then he sort of laughs it off at the end by saying um, that God is 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 the greatest thing um, in, in glory and all that. And how could he have a partner? You know, why would he need a partner of any kind? All right. So I'm going to skip to the 19th chapter. So to 19, and I'm going to read this to you. This is interesting. It says, relate in the book the story of Mary when she withdrew from her family to a place in the east. So this one I'm about to read you guys is the story of Mary giving birth to Jesus from the Islamic perspective. So think think about how this is different from the story we see in the Bible. So Mary withdrew, she left, leaves her family, she goes someplace to the east. It says she placed a screen to screen herself from them. Then we sent to her our angel, and he appeared before her as a man in all respects. 
She said, I seek refuge from thee to God, most gracious. Come not near, if thou dost fear God. And he said, Nay, I am only a messenger from thy Lord to announce to thee the gift of a holy son. She said, How shall I have a son, seeing that no man has touched me, and I am not unchaste? He said, So it will be, the Lord saith, that is easy for me, and we wish to appoint him as a sign unto men and a mercy from us. So she conceived him, and she retired with him to a a remote place. And the pains of childbirth drove her to the trunk of a palm tree. She cried in her anguish. At length she brought the babe to her people, carrying him in her arms. They said, O Mary, O sister of Aaron. But she pointed to the babe. They said, How can we talk to one who is a child in the cradle? Now Jesus says, I am indeed a servant of God. He hath given me revelation and made me a prophet. So peace is on me the day I was born, the day that I die, and the day that I shall be raised up to life again. All right, so did you see what just happened there? So there's no stable. There's no, you know, going back to going back to the place where your family's from to pay taxes. There's none of that stuff about the census, um, you know, the, the wise men. That, that None of that's here. Mary just gets up one day. She leaves her family. She has a miraculous conception and seems to give birth all at once at the same at the, on the same day. It seems like it, it doesn't seem like nine months has gone by. And when Jesus is born, he she shows back up with the baby, and everyone's amazed. How, you know what's what's this? And uh, he she doesn't explain. She just points to Jesus like he's going to explain for himself. And they're like, "How can this baby, this newborn baby, speak? How am I supposed to speak to the baby?" And Jesus, Jesus just chimes right in, newborn baby, I am indeed a servant of God. He hath given me revelation and made me a prophet, right? All right, so here I got I to gotta interject that this story, as strange as it sounds, it was circulating in the early days of Christianity among those Gnostic groups, and it does come from another infancy gospel. And I have that quote I want to read to you from this Gnostic gospel, and it says this, Jesus spake, even when he was in the cradle, and said to his mother, Mary, I am Jesus, the Son of God. That word which thou didst bring forth according to the declaration of the angel Gabriel to thee, and my Father hath sent me for the salvation of the world. So that, Jesus speaking as an infant and saying that, like I have been sent from God and I am the salvation of the world, is very much like what you see in the Quran. I am indeed a servant of God. I have been given the revelation and I'm a prophet, right? So, so it does seem like you get some of these early, early Christian beliefs that survive in the Quran. I just think that's very interesting. But it is an interesting story. Um, you do see, obviously, um, some similarities, and you know, Mary being a virgin, and the angel being there, and Jesus being miraculous, miraculously born. All right, and then the last one from this chapter goes like this: None shall have the power of intercession, but such as as one, such a one as has received permission from God, most gracious. What is intercession? What is what is this quote at talking about? So intercession is a word you would know if you're Catholic. If you're not, you're probably like, what is he talking about? So intercession is the idea that somebody can speak to God on your behalf or plead to God on your behalf. In the Catholic Church, that's a priest, right? So you go um, to a Catholic Church and you, and you, 
confess to a priest, and a priest then gets forgiveness for you on your behalf from God, right? The priest is the holy one who can approach God. You're not. So you're going to tell him what you're going to ask the priest what you want. He's going to go to God and get and make a deal for you. And that's sort of how intercession works, that a saint or a priest or somebody can work or speak to God on your behalf. And Islam is saying nobody should have that power. That doesn't exist. So clearly, that to me, that is a challenge to the priesthood, and it's a challenge to the Catholic orthodoxy. And that might be, again, something that... that Muhammad believed was a was a change that was needed to get back to the true religion. All right, so we're we're rounding out. We only have a few left. So, Surah twenty one, uh, verse ninety one starts like this: "And remember her who guarded her her chastity. We breathed into her of our spirit, and we made her and her a son a sign for all peoples." So, according to Islam. Mary and Jesus were a sign to all peoples. A sign of what? Well, they don't say. But that there was a miracle here, and that Jesus was born of a miracle. And that's a sign, I suppose, that he's a legitimate prophet, a legitimate messenger from God, and something special and something different from the prophets that came before him, or after him, for that matter. Um, and again, when, it's, when it says, we breathed into her of our spirit, I have to say, we again is God. And God breathed his spirit into Mary to, so that Jesus could be born. Um, I just think it's weird that you can see language like this. We breathed into her of our spirit. Talking about God as though God are many things. We breathed our spirit. That's not one God. Exactly. So why is it that the Muslims are okay using language like that, but are saying that you can't even conceive of the idea of a trinity without blaspheming somehow. It, to me, there's something weird going on there that's not explained, and I wonder if it has to do with what, what we said at the beginning, that even somebody like Muhammad didn't know Christians enough, didn't know them well enough and what they believed well enough to understand that when we talk, when we talk about the Trinity or talk about Jesus in the context of identity with God, and then you go in and use the same language the Old Testament does as, as though God is plural, that there's something there that is not well understood. You know, I'm not pointing fingers and saying which party it is, but it seems to me that perhaps Muhammad didn't quite thoroughly understand what the what the dogma really is, what the Christian beliefs really are. And and not not to recognize that there's some hypocrisy here. You know? And I, I just think I just think it comes it boils down to maybe not understanding what Christians really believe. All right, so I'll jump to Surah 43. And I'll read the last couple here. So verse 61 goes like this. And Jesus shall be a sign for the coming of the hour of judgment. Therefore, have no doubt about the hour, but follow ye me. This is a straight way. So here there's a connection between Jesus and the end times, and the day of judgment. And that's just like you see in the Bible, um, the, the Quran agrees with, that there will be an end of time and that Jesus will be involved, and that his appearance will be the way for you to know, or his reappearance will be the way for you to know that that that, that hour of judgment has come. And the last one goes like this. My devotees, no fear shall be on you that day, nor shall ye grieve, being those who have believed in our signs and bowed in Islam. 
Enter ye the garden, ye and your wives, in beauty and rejoicing. To them will be passed round dishes and goblets of gold. There will be there at all the souls, excuse me, there will be there all that the soul could, souls could desire, all that the eyes could delight in, and ye shall abide therein. Such will be the garden of which ye are made heirs for your good deeds in life. Okay, so I think this is also interesting because even though the Muslims and the um, Christians are, are talking along similar lines about the day of judgment, the end of time, that kind of thing, what the, what the Quran promises is that the people who believe um, in Muhammad and in Islam, that those people at the end of time don't have to be worried because rather than going to hell or being burned or, or tortured or disappearing or whatever, whatever the threat is, that those people are going to actually be gifted with paradise. They're going to go to the garden, right? That's the garden of Eden, the garden of paradise. And there they're going to have food and gold dishes and everything they could ever desire. And like that's the heaven that gets painted as, as the, the reward for Muslims being faithful after the end of time and the judgment comes. And I'm not so sure that that's exactly the Christian understanding. You know, the Christian understanding is something like the world gets destroyed by a battle between between the forces of good and evil, but, but between the battle of you know God and and uh, the devil, let's say, and that a new world is born afterwards, and that new world is not promised to be heaven. You know, it's not it's not eternal and heaven necessarily. It might be a it might be a start over. It might be a fresh start and a, and a new crack at it. Um, you know, it's not really clear what it is, but it's not exactly. It's not exactly paradise like what you see in the Garden of Eden. That's not the Christian understanding of heaven, but it definitely seems to be the Muslim one. So, so going back to the question I asked at the beginning that Mejdi couldn't answer for me, and maybe I couldn't answer to him if he asked me the same question, is what is it that Jesus taught that made him a messenger, bringing some message different or, or other than what what was already believed by the Jews? What was it? You know, it seems to be it seems to be a stricter interpretation of our f- fallibility as human beings and our imperfectness and our and our need for salvation. Um, that I can't even think about a woman uh, in a sexual way without having committed that sin of adultery, without without being worthy of hellfire forever, you know, without having done something so bad that I'm un- uh, unredeemable. Um, so that's unavoidable without Jesus. And so that, you know, the the existence of Jesus and the existence of this final. Um, paying for our sins and, and offering us of salvation, that, that that was something added to the Jewish law. It's not just that if you are perfect and if you work hard enough to never sin, right, if you can become perfect in your acts and deeds and thoughts, something like a Buddhist might say, then you'll be worthy of God. And, and nobody is that. Not even the Pharisees who pretended that they were. That that the that the Muslims in the Quran kind of pointed and made fun of it, that sort of that sort of take like, that doesn't exist that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God as as they say so that was something that Jesus in this in the Christian story added to the religion of the Jews it's that you cannot be perfect 
It's impossible. So you, so you receive that salvation from from the the only perfect thing that's existed, Jesus. You know that's how the dogma goes. So that's all added. That's all added. Plus, you've got a bunch of liberal reform about how, you know, pointing out how the laws and blind obedience to the laws is not the point. It's not. That's not what God is asking of you, and it's sort of a misunderstanding of the Old Testament that you have to look at the spirit of the laws and that you have to notice in people's actions, like specifically in the priests, when they do not practice what they preach. And so this was a time when the Jewish priesthood was super powerful, you know? And Jesus is coming around saying, fuck you guys, you know? That's bold and revolutionary. And those are changes, obviously, to the, to the Jewish religion. Okay, so then let's ask the question again that I posed to Meshdi. What is it about the Muslim message? What was it that the, that the Prophet Muhammad came to share that was different from what the, what the Christians preached? And see, those things really seem to, seem to revolve around the, the identity of Jesus. So it seems like Muhammad came to suggest to us that we're wrong in believing that Jesus is God, and that we're wrong in, con- in conceiving anything differently than as than as one. That God is one. It's a very mystic thing, and I can't help but agree with that. So I think that there maybe there is some truth in that, and it's not just a matter of everybody. You know, every, pretty much everybody in the Arab world was believing in many gods, and then they needed to come to the idea that God was only was only one, uh, so that they could get closer to the truth. It's not only that. All right, so I'm not sure how to bring this to a close, apart from maybe asking, maybe I'll ask how compelling that is. Like the, the idea that if you're a Christian and you believe in the Jewish law and you believe in the, in the Christian uh, tradition uh, and you're faithful, that all you really have to do to have it right is to stop pretending and stop trying to understand God as something that's fractured or something that's more than one. That if you can just get away from that path of, of perdition, that you'll, that you'll come to the truth. So how important is that to you? You know, Is that something that would... Can you believe that and still be a Christian? I guess is a question. Um, is that sort of difference that God is one and Jesus couldn't possibly have been God, is that one difference in dogma enough for you to change religion? Enough for you to take on a whole other holy book and consider it to be, uh, you know, the end all be all and the truth um, apart from the Bible? Is that enough justification for you to do that? You know, I don't want to be insensitive, but I'm not sure that it is. You know, we, we did that episode on Baha'i, and those those people were Muslims, and they believe everything that we've just talked about, apart from the fact that there was a prophet after Muhammad. 
the Bab and the Baha'u'llah. You know, they're doing the same thing that Muhammad did. They're just doing it all over again. So you have this possibility, you have this this permanent possibility that more prophets will show up to undermine what you've already taught. And and the Quran kind of is okay with that. You know, and there, there's a paradox there too because they kind of are and they kind of not. But one of the things that we read earlier was them saying that um, that the message of God will be completed. And it doesn't matter how many people, you know, take it in the wrong direction or disbelieve it. That the messengers will just continue to come and go wherever they need to go until the truth is out there, until people understand what they're meant to understand. And I wonder if that has already happened. And what a Muslim would say to somebody like the Baha'i religion that claims that they have the next prophet and have the next tweak to the message. You know, we t- you can go back and listen to that Baha'i episode, but there's some pretty reasonable tweaks to the religion that 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 they propose. You know, to 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 uh, changing Islam that you know I I have hard a hard time saying is uh, you know bad. I think they're pretty pretty good in terms of the reform that the that the religion proposes. So I don't know what you think of that, you guys, um, but I wonder if you could answer the question now. I mean, having listened to me for a little while, could you answer the question better anyway? What did Jesus do that changed the religion from Judaism to Christianity? What did he say and believe and teach that made a difference? And what did Muhammad say and, and teach that made it, that made a distinction between Christianity and Islam? Now that you know or know a little better, maybe you can judge for yourself a little better as to whether... You know, Christianity is legitimate. You know, out you know outcropping from Judaism, and and that makes valuable changes in some positive direction. And whether whether Muhammad did the same. So I'm going to end here with a couple of other passages from the Quran that I, I think are appropriate to end on here. Surah five, uh, verse forty-eight starts like this: "To thee, we sent the Scripture in truth." confirming the scripture that came before it and guarding it in safety. So judge between them by what God hath revealed and follow not their vain desires diverging from the truth that hath come to see thee, that have come to thee. To each among you have we prescribed a law and an open way. The goal of you is to God. It is he that will show you the truth of the matters in which ye dispute. Let the people of the gospel judge by what God hath revealed therein. If any do fail to judge by the light of what God hath revealed, they are no better than those who rebel. So so what's Muhammad saying here? He's saying something interesting, something I think is optimistic, something I think needs to be perhaps yelled out of a megaphone to all of the extremists out there um, in the world that want to... That want to force, you know, the Muslim culture and religion onto the world, um, you know, by threat of violence. Let's say that what Muhammad is saying here is something interesting. He's saying that you should judge the revelation of God. You should judge the prophets and the scriptures and the religion based upon what's based upon what you believe to be legitimate religious insight. So if you are 
a Christian and believe in the Gospels, that you should judge the Quran and you should judge Muhammad in, in, as a prophet based upon what you believe from the Gospels. You can look at the Scriptures and you can look at the Prophets, whichever, the one, whichever ones you adhere to, and judge the message of Muhammad in Islam from what you already know and believe in your heart. I think that's, I think that's legitimate. I think that is putting the ball in the court of the thinker. It's allowing you to judge for yourself. Um, and as different as that might be from some of the extremists you see in the Muslim world today, there you have it, you know, in the Quran, judge for yourself. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.